0: everyone. Welcome to the 331st episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel, And we have a lot of things going on this week for you, starting off with a $200 million fundraising for a company that makes self-powered sensors. We also have an interesting idea about your home, including a safe word. Plus, the Biden administration has done another executive order, this time about cybersecurity for infrastructure and infrastructure control systems. And we have a coffee machine that I don't know if you're going to want to buy, but I'm intrigued. We're also going to be talking about a new study on incidental users of your smart home. I have Madam A getting a new name and voice. I've got a satellite dev kit that's going to be available at what is really a reasonable price for a lot of y'all. So if you want to try out satellite connectivity, you're going to be interested in this. And Kevin has reviewed a $60 mesh router system, and he's going to tell you about it. Plus, we've got another firewall on the way. And our guest this week is going to be Jason Shepard of Zadita, talking about IT, OT, and machine learning in industrial use cases. We're also going to hear from very who is our sponsor, not once, but twice this week. So let's hear from them first up. Oh, y'all you know that Very is an IoT development firm that has helped build a lot of products for their customers. Their award-winning team of senior engineers, designers, and data scientists are happy to work with you to get your IoT hardware and software products totally operational. If you would like to learn more, visit www.veripossible.com. Okay, Kevin, let's kick this off with one of... I really actually like this company. It's a company called. Will- well, here, here comes Stacy. Only reads things and doesn't ever say them to people. Even though I've talked to them, I think it's Williot.
1: That makes sense because it's got IoT at the end. It's W I L I O T. I would go with Williot.
0: Okay, or maybe it's Will IoT. Who knows? We don't.
1: <laughs> that would confuse it with Will I M. So I don't think it's that.
0: He's in IoT too. His fund still owns Wink. So anyway. Let's talk about Williot. I first encountered this company almost when I started this newsletter. They were building a chip that harvested RF energy to send Bluetooth signals. And so the idea was a battery-free chip that could send sensor data over Bluetooth. And I was like, that is awesome because if you wanna stick trillion sensors out in the world, even a billion sensors, you cannot be changing their batteries all the time. And now just this week, they announced a $200 million Series C round that was uh, led by SoftBank's Vision Fund. And SoftBank, actually, when they bought ARM way back in, oh, was that 2016?
1: That sounds about right.
0: Yeah, it was 2016, 2015. And masayoshi Son had this idea that we were going to have a trillion sensors. And when he said that, I was like, that's crazy. We can't have a trillion people want to change batteries. So this investment falls right in line with SoftBank's vision and personally my vision. No, no one likes batteries. Mm. So a little bit about Williat. What they do, their core IP is a chip. But because they're raising some big time bucks, they've got to throw a bunch of stuff in here. So now they're talking about becoming a sensor as a service company. They throw in AI sensing and all of this stuff. But what you really need to understand is there are two pieces here. There's the chip piece that doesn't have a battery that uses sensors and can send this data up to the second piece, which is the cloud piece. And it looks like you can build and deploy algorithms that will take and use that data. But Basically, these are sensors that you won't have to touch again, so you can just really scale them out. And the cloud piece probably also handles the orchestration and configuration of those sensors, which is also important when you have a billion sensors.
1: Yeah, the the little sensors, I know when you wrote about them in 2017, they weren't available yet. They had hoped to have them out by 2019. They are out. They're the Williat IoT Pixels. They just use a small, they say postage stamp-sized, sticker, essentially, with a a low-powered ARM Cortex-M0 chip, a little bit of RAM, not much at all, Bluetooth LE for their connectivity. They come in reels, like, like stamps, and you just stick them on things through the supply chain or have them stuck on. I mean, I wouldn't have a person doing it, obviously, but, you know. So the product that they predicted to have is out, and now they've got this whole cloud service to manage the supply chain and...
0: yeah. I mean it's really cool stuff and Avery Dennison is involved in their their financing as well and Avery Dennison is a packaging and they call themselves a the material science company but they do all kinds of crazy packaging stuff it's really neat so you could see something like this ending up on you know casual products out there cuz it could be used for cold chain management it can measure fill levels motion humidity proximity I mean this there's a lot here so you know, they're talking about integrating into like vaccines and food packaging. I like it.
1: Even recyclables.
0: Oh. Well, yeah. Ooh. I okay. would love to
1: track actually how much I recycle versus how much I probably should be, how much I miss.
0: Yeah. Could you recycle the tags though? Good question. Hmm. Anyway. come on the show. They should. I'll, I'll extend an invitation. They're definitely at a point where they're doing more things. All right. So that's that. I was excited about it. Let's talk about another concept. This is a concept I can't believe I I haven't thought of. Um,
1: (laughs) No, this is a really good idea. I agree with you.
0: Yeah. So a reporter over at Digital Trends, Patrick Hearn, wrote an essay about why smart homes should include a safe word for emergency situations. Do you want to talk about it, Kevin?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you can probably figure out what situations this would be helpful with. And the fact that we don't have these yet, no platform I know has this, but suppose you have somebody come into your home to fix your HVAC system or uh, do some cleaning or something like that, but you're not quite sure that everything's on the up and up. Um, maybe it's somebody impersonating somebody. You know, if you don't carry your phone, where you don't wear a smartwatch, and we've, we've done some statistical analysis, and 50% of the people that do this podcast fit into that category, because Stacey does not fit into wearing a smartwatch or carrying a phone. It's true. Um, yeah. So, obviously, there's a big market for this. <laughs> it's, um,
0: it's me! You no,
1: know, even, even with my phone and my smartwatch, it would be really nice to have some type of safe word, that I could say to my, you know, just say out loud. It, it, think of it as a silent wake word where my digital assistant doesn't respond to me saying anything, but it, it actually may contact 911 or something or a, or a family member or something like that. I think the, um, the reporter at Digital Trends said use the word pernicious. So, uh, as a safe word, it, it was a suggestion, but I'm sure we could come up with many examples and use that in the conversation as you're talking to that individual that you're unsure about and. You know, notify somebody that you may not be okay.
0: I like it. Plus, it also gives you the ability to, like, I, some. I mean, I guess if I'm in a room with my Echo, I could use it to call someone. Hopefully, maybe. Um, but or or my Google Assistant. But like programmable actions. I would yeah, say would go nicely. If you if you fall or something happens, you can just shout pernicious.
1: Well, yes, I, I'd probably choose a different word to shout, but but yes, I, I mean the idea is sound. And to be honest, I'm a little more surprised that some of the home security monitoring services that have tie-ins with digital assistants and smart speakers haven't done this yet, or maybe they haven't. I'm just not aware.
0: Yeah, ADT, stop suing everybody and get on this sort of development of innovative yeah. ideas. Oh,
1: All there's right. my there's my um, word, blue octagon,
0: <laughs> blue, blue, blue octagon. octagon. <laughs>
1: Is that a blue octagon on your uniform, sir? What?
0: Mm. (laughs) All right. In other security news, perhaps more, well, I was going to say pernicious. No, it's not pernicious.
1: I'm actually surprised that what we're going to talk about hasn't happened in the past.
0: Well, so, okay. Today, like this morning before we recorded the podcast on Wednesday, Uh, The White House issued a national security memorandum to improve cybersecurity for critical infrastructure control systems. This is things that monitor oil and gas refineries, uh, water plants, any process manufacturing has an industrial control system on it.
1: Even other utilities, I would think, like uh, electric companies.
0: Yes, yes, they actually talk about electric companies in here. So basically, there. this isn't... Uh, sorry, I was saying... Thanks for
1: pointing out that Kevin didn't read this.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yes, I was talking about ICSs as industrial control systems. This is actually... They're calling it infrastructure control systems because they mean things that use ICSs, but they also mean anything that's part of infrastructure. And the worry here is... You know, after the colonial pipeline shut down, and I'm sure someone in Washington read, uh, I'm actually reading it now, it's Nicole Perloth's book on This is the Way the World Ends. And if you read that book, which I highly suggest you do, you will walk away terrified and and glad that this is happening.
1: (laughs) There's a recommendation
0: little digression here, but I didn't think I needed to read this book because I was like, dude, I know our attack surface is expanding. And I also know that, you know, cybersecurity is not where it needs to be. But what I was not aware of was the level of trading at the global nation state level of zero day attacks and how badly we have screwed up in terms of letting a lot of our knowledge of those get out into the wild and how basically the U.S. is now, we used to be very far ahead and now we're basically where everyone else is and we're all hosed and Russia is actively using these. Basically, this book really sheds a light on this topic. Even if you think you know, you probably don't know. Well, a couple of y'all probably do know, but not everyone. You should read it. You should also read this national security memorandum. What they're doing here is the Biden administration is saying, hey, we need to safeguard our critical infrastructure. To do that, we're going to create the Industrial Control Systems Cybersecurity Initiative. It is a voluntary effort between the federal government and companies that have critical infrastructure. And they're going to be talking about how they need to secure these systems. They focused on the work that has been done in the electricity Industry. So the FERC, actually, the Federal Electric Reliability Commission, actually a couple years ago issued some cybersecurity rules that were actually pretty good. And they're now working on something for natural gas pipelines, and they're going to follow that up with water and wastewater sector systems and chemical sector systems for later this year. They're going to establish cybersecurity performance goals and figure out baseline security practices that all infrastructure has to follow. That means we're going to see an upgrade of security across the board in the next couple of years, which is good. Um, and if I'm basing this off like what NIST and other organizations have done at the federal level related to cybersecurity, it's going to be an something that is updated every few years to try to address new and upcoming threats. So this is good. This is exactly what we need to do. And my only question is, are we going to have budgets? So sometimes with like, if you think about wastewater, a lot of that is done at the municipal level. Municipal governments don't have a lot of money for this. So if we're talking about a wholesale upgrade of their infrastructure, we're going to have to figure out how to pay for that. So that's it. So know that that's out there. It's probably a big opportunity. If you're in this space, get ready for it. If you're not in this space, feel good that we're thinking about it. (laughs) And to be honest, I mean, rolling it out
1: at the national level will address quite a bit of the, of the threat vectors. I mean, granted, as you said, municipal municipalities and, and so on. Um, they may not have the funding. But if you can reduce a lot of the initial threat at the national level, either maybe you'll find money or you can have some kind of trickle-down effect to the municipal governments that could you know, latch on to use the same technologies and so on. So there's, it's the right way to do it. I wouldn't do a bottom-up approach is what I'm saying. Top-down is the way to go on this.
0: Yeah. And we'll have experts laying out what Governments need to consider. So like if you're a small town, your wastewater treatment plant might be run by Rick, who doesn't have a cybersecurity degree and wouldn't ever get one. But now Rick has a criteria that his if he buys something, he needs to follow that criteria. He probably also has access to, you know, tools that have been developed now for that. And it will just make Rick's job a little bit easier without hopefully having to hire Accenture to come in and charge a lot of money. So, yay. All right. Let's talk about coffee. Mm. This is a crazy gadget (laughs) and...
1: The juicero of coffee makers.
0: Wow, that is harsh. All right. This is a device called <laughs> Spin. That's Spin with two ends, And this is a, they call themselves a hardware-enabled coffee marketplace. And if you're gagging along with me it's because of that, just feel free. They raised $20 million for a coffee machine that instead of pressing your coffee grounds, they use centrifugal, I can never say it. centrifugal. centrifugal centrifugal force they spin it with two ends yes Yes, they spin it around really fast as a method for extracting the most flavor from your ground coffee beans
1: which they it grinds them as well i believe
0: yes it does grind them it grinds them spins them it spins them that's easier to say yeah so the idea here is it's fancy hardware. It says it's going to retail for 7 dollars but you can get it for 4 dollars except it's sold out. So you can't. So there's basically, I guess this got funding from Amazon because you can use a voice command to Madam A or just touch a button from the phone or the machine and the machine will grind the beans, heat the water and brew your coffee. And Whatever type and amount you have. I, you know, they, they liken this to being like the Dyson for vacuums, which did pioneer a completely new way to create suction in a vacuum. So sure, this is a completely new way to grind your coffee. It also, you can use this with a, a subscription to a variety of coffee things. I, it actually looks just like I have a subscription to trade coffee, which sends me a new coffee every three weeks. This looks very similar, and Kevin checked out pricing. What would you find? Yeah, I
1: actually found um, there's a local coffee house that sells their beans in the next town over for me here in Southeast Pennsylvania, and they are featured on the spin market. And there's, what do they say, up to like 500 different roasters that they work with. I could actually go down the street and buy the same 12 ounces for like a dollar less, and they even offer a subscribe and save directly, so I don't have to do that through Spin. But, you know, I mean, I, I see what Spin's doing. Let's get a dollar extra on every subscription and, you know, make it sound magical. Um, the, I don't know if you knew this. This has been in the works for a long time, and I, I did not know this till I read the reviews, mm-hmm. the recent reviews. One comment is, worth the four-and-a-half-year wait, and, enough, <laughs> and the next one says, seems worth the wait of five-and-a-half years.
0: Whew! That is a long time. Yes, Okay. Well, if you only have to wait another few months, then good. It is on back order. You can make cold brew in this as well. So you can make espresso-style coffees, uh, drip coffee, and yeah. Yay.
1: I'll stick with my cheapie. Hmm.
0: It also has recipes that your roaster network. So it basically the roaster network. So whatever type of coffee you have, it's possible that they will have preset recipes for the best cup of coffee for that particular blend, which is kind of an interesting idea.
1: Well, it's funny that you say that because one of the... first concerns was, oh, it only works with some kind of proprietary coffee, you know, something or other that you have to get your coffee through them. And you don't. We've kind of alluded to that. And one of the reviews says, the only complaint I have about it is it keeps asking for the coffee brand, presumably through this recipe thing you just mentioned. And since I didn't buy the coffee through their market, I have no way of dismissing the prompt.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's worth a dollar. I don't know. A dollar on every bag of coffee. Lock in maybe. (sighs) Ah. All right. Let's talk about incidental users of your smart home. Kevin, do you know what an incidental user is?
1: I suspect it's somebody who did not mean to trigger a digital assistant in my house. Maybe it was somebody in my family, or maybe it was just somebody who is visiting.
0: No. Well, yes. (gasps) Well. So very close. Very, very close. It is a person who is a guest in your home and someone who didn't buy this and doesn't know it's necessarily in your home. Mm-hmm. So research out of Carnegie Mellon University's labs they do a lot of research into how people use smart homes and privacy and security in smart homes. They were actually pioneering a nutrition style label for smart home data gathering. This particular research talks about how incidental users react to different device types. And basically, the research was trying to figure out, is this something we should think about? Should we think about incidental users? and? The conclusion was yes, because they asked people things like, have you ever seen a camera outside your neighbor's house? Have you ever seen a voice assistant at your friend's house? And 91% of the people who took the survey, so out of 400, said yes to at least one of those questions. So it's clear that we're, we're getting stuck either talking near or on video of other people's smart home devices and Yeah, this this
1: goes back to something I've said in the past, and it's still one of my rules to live by. No matter where you are, assume you're either on camera or a microphone is nearby.
0: Ew, I thought you were going to say ask people or warn people when they come into your house that you have these devices. Well,
1: I I would love that. I think that's the better solution, but I don't think it's the practical solution anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and so this is kind of part of the overall Scilabs, like, creation of better ways to show people that they're being captured or their data is being captured.
1: I would have no problem putting a sign on my front door, a very small sign that says we use smart device products that may capture your image or speech.
0: Yeah. And we, we do that. Like anybody who's inside our house, if we have cameras, like we let people know that there are cameras. My husband doesn't agree with this, but I don't care. (laughs) We well, do it anyway. Than
1: I, you're nicer than I am. I, I I just don't remember to do it.
0: Oh, I think it's really important, partially because of these reasons.
1: Maybe your devices should be sending out like warning beacons so that people get a heads up on their phone as they come to the property.
0: That's an interesting idea because I, I did have a designer, Carla Diana came on the show probably a couple months ago now. And she talked about when there's a person listening in, you can see them in the room. like So let's say you're having a conversation with your best friend at a coffee shop or even in your house, but maybe your mom is sitting in the next room. You know that she's there, right? She may not be talking, but you know that she's there. But with uh, Madame A or some other device, you don't actually necessarily see them. You don't know they're there. And Carla's talking about how to create little signals so these devices can indicate to people that, hey, we're here. Just so you know, we we might be listening accidentally or whatever.
1: You and I should create a, quickly create a wireless standard for the industry.
0: Yes, quickly. <laughs> well, such, such
1: beacons we have until oh 24 hours because that's when the show goes live, so let's get on it.
0: Got it. Okay. So, speaking of devices that can can hear you and that you can speak to, Madam A, ooh it's now gone from A to Z. Instead of just saying Madam A's name, you can also now say Ziggy, which...
1: I doubt you said anybody's off right now, because I don't think people realize that you can change Madam A to Mr. Z.
0: Mr. Z. Yeah. Can we call it Jay-Z? <laughs> A-Z? Mm. No. Okay. Have
1: you heard the voice yet? Yes. And how does
0: it sound? I have not listened. It's, it sounds fine.
1: It sounds like a Ziggy. It,
0: it does. See, I thought, so there's Ziggy Starship. Everybody's going into like what all Ziggy could be. I think of that cartoon from when I was a kid of that little yes. sad loser dude.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Probably not the best image in mind, but it came to my mind too. Yeah.
0: So I thought like Eeyore. I thought it yes. sounded like it, but it doesn't. Frumpy and cranky. And not cranky. Just sad. kind of like the world never... Gives it what it wants. Oh, Oh, anyway. It's
1: not that kind of Ziggy. It's getting Ziggy with it. That's the kind of Ziggy it is. Oh,
0: anyway. So now you can use Madam A, Computer, Echo, Amazon, and Ziggy as your wake word. And you can get Madam A, Original, and Madam A, New, which is a man. So just ask Madam A to change your voice. And then you can select the new wake word by saying, That may change your wake word and it is device specific. So you'll have to talk to different echoes, which might actually be good. If you have like two echoes in like rooms nearby, there you go.
1: This is permanent by the way, because I know they sometimes roll out celebrity voices or other voices. Oh yeah,
0: They also rolled out like Shaq and Melissa McCarthy as potential voices, but yeah.
1: Right. I'll stick with Ziggy. Thank you.
0: There you go. So that, that exists. And for my DIY fans who live in the middle of nowhere, or just DIY fans who want to play with satellite, I have got the thing for you, Swarm. We've had the CEO of Swarm, Sarah Spangalo, on the show before. Swarm does satellite internet, and their claim to fame is that they do very small amounts of data sent up to the cloud. They don't do a lot of downlink at all. Um, They can do some, but not a lot, and this kit doesn't allow you to do downlinks. But they have launched an evaluation kit. It is $4.99 for the eval kit. It's going to send messages or GPS positioning through their satellite network. You also need to buy a data plan for Swarm, which is $60 a year. You might think that's expensive, but it's really not. $5 a month for satellite internet is for crazy satellite, awesome. Yeah,
1: that's the difference right there. Yep.
0: Yeah. And the data plan is going to give you 750 one-way data packets per device per month. And those one-way data packets can have up to 192 bytes per packet. So this is not
1: a lot of... You couldn't even fit a tweet.
0: Oh, yeah, you couldn't. But you can fit, like filter on, moisture sensors, temperature sensors, yeah. all kinds of just GPS location data. So you can get this on the Swarm website. I am actually getting one of these so I can test it because I'm really what? interested to see if it's easy enough for Stacy to do it. This will work with BLE sensor devices. So we're going to try that and see, because I thought I, I don't need to use satellite. I could use cellular, but This is actually cheaper than cellular on an annual basis.
1: So they do have a web app for your phone or laptop to send messages. And it says to any email address from anywhere in the world. So I have to be the first one to get a swarm message from your GPS satellite. I will do it.
0: And I should also tell you, this is really important because we are talking satellite. There is a nine watt solar panel and a rechargeable battery. It's IP68 waterproof enclosure for this stuff. It's a tripod and an antenna. It's really cool looking, y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get Wi-Fi, USB-C, and USB micro serial and serial inputs to the device. So you can actually hook something into this and like hook in a sensor and off you go, or you can BLE tether it. And it's got a Feather S2 board. So for any IoT product creation. So y'all, it's going to be super fun and it's available as of today. So if that's something you're interested in, check it out or you can wait until I check it out and then I'll tell you if you should be interested or not.
1: I think I'll wait.
0: Okay, yeah. And Kevin, you're trying something out, but you actually already tried yours out. You want to talk about it?
1: That's correct. Speaking of network connectivity, um we're going to move away from satellite and get into mesh networking because I guess it was about two weeks ago. A company I'd never heard of. I believe it's Velo, Velo Living, V I L O, which we found out before the show is a company that's doing business as Velo, but they're tied to Kivo Technologies, which appears to be in Asia. But that's neither here nor there. They came out with a three-pack mesh Wi-Fi system, Wi-Fi six, for fifty nine ninety nine, and I'm like. how good can that be? I mean, I spent $599.99 on my Euro Pro 6 just to have all the bells and whistles. And while you may not get all the bells and whistles of something like the Euro Pro 6, the Velo system shocked the bejesus out of me with how good it is. And not just for the price. When you factor in the price, it's like the perfect first mesh networking system for somebody who is Just never had one, isn't technically inclined, needs hand-holding through setup and all that. It's perfect. This is. I would recommend this to my sister. She's not anti-tech, but she's...
0: She doesn't have 80 smart home devices and isn't gaming and... She doesn't
1: have any smart home devices, but they have a lot of phones and tablets and such and lots of kids. And they just bought a new house and they need more coverage. I would so recommend this to people like her. So again, $60, three-pack, any one of the three-pack devices can act as your main router. So I connected mine to my ISP directly and then set it up. And I have to say, and I said this in my review, I really think Velo nailed the setup process and the software, which is really important for the target audience. Because Stacey, you and I are not the target audience for this. We need some of those extra features that I'll talk about in a little bit. We can get through anything, any kind of setup. But for again, for people like my sister, she just wants to plug it in, hit a few buttons on her mobile app, and be connected. It's a scan a QR code, set up the network name and password, and you're done. And then the access points, they self-configure. You just plug them in around the house and wirelessly. They connect to the main router and get all the Wi-Fi information. I believe they do a peer-to-peer Wi-Fi setup and then switch over to the main network that you set up. And in one minute, they are access points for Wi-Fi 6 throughout your home. So again, nailed it. Now, to save on cost, these are not tri-band routers. These are dual-band. They support the 2.4 gigahertz and the 5 gigahertz spectrum. But there is no, what I'll call dedicated wireless backhaul like I have with my much more expensive router. Um, That means there's no dedicated wireless channel for the routers to speak to the access points. So all traffic is going to kind of go over the same network in that case. And as a result, even though these are Wi-Fi 6, they are limited in speed.
0: Not that limited. I mean, it didn't seem like you were suffering terribly.
1: No, not at all. I have a one gigabit per second fiber connection to the house. And no matter where I tested, um, like on my euros, I pretty much averaged around 450 megabits per second, about 11 seconds of latency. The same location, the same devices. All I did was switch the network because I, I ran these simultaneously. The Velos were like 325 megabits per second and 14 seconds latency, which may be 20% slower both on the upload and the download, and for 90% less of what I paid. <laughs> so if you're, if in, as a pure Throughput standpoint, you're getting a good value here. And to be honest, I only compare these against the much more expensive Euro Pro Sixes because that's what I have in my house right now. This doesn't compete against them clearly. It goes against the uh, the Euro Six, the Google Nest Wi-Fi, some of the entry level Orbeez, and so on. But even so, pretty much the same throughputs should be expected based on the dual band technology and so on. And those all cost like 150 to 200 for a three pack. Whereas this, if you don't even want to buy a three pack, you can just pay 20 bucks per unit. Get one. That's your router. Get two. Have a router and a mesh network with one access point. Get the three pack. Get five. It doesn't matter. It's 20 bucks a pop. No subscription fees. No nothing. So that's pretty impressive. Also impressive. And, and you know, I love my ethernet ports. This comes with three one gigabit ethernet ports on the back. I didn't want to say three gigabits. Um, and that's key. One. To hardwire your internet from your ISP on the main router, and to to hardwire, say a TV and a, a Sonos or something, you know, on every single unit, you have those dual jacks. Where it is like even on the Euro Pro, I have one. That's a big deal. I don't know how they did that. Well, it's not that expensive for an Ethernet jack. But anyway, so plug and play is good. The extra jack is very important. You can set up a guest Wi-Fi network. There's some parental controls. You get basic per device bandwidth reports if you want. You can block devices. There's no malware or device threat protection, which sometimes come with routers, often with a subscription fee. So if you want that, maybe this isn't for you. But it does have a few little advanced features that you can schedule in the app. Router restarts. How many questions do we get about people trying to schedule or automate router restarts?
0: At least one a month. So, yes,
1: it's crazy. Yeah, this just works. There's you don't have to connect it to Ift or, or Google or Amazon to do that. It, you can just do it in the app. Super surprising to me. The Eero Pro 6 actually does worse of handing me off between the access points than the Velos do. It was much quicker to switch to the closest access point as I walked around my house than with my Eero. Like with the Eero, I get so frustrated that I'm connected two hops away to a wireless router or access point that I turn my Wi-Fi off on of my phone and then turn it back on just to connect to the nearest one. This, I didn't have to do it. It just did it. It wasn't instant, but it sure worked a heck of a lot better. So no major smart home features here, but I didn't notice any difference in my smart home devices on the network and i will say this also i wanted to test this because we get this question a lot too people say i just bought such and such camera or such and such doorbell and it only works with 2.4 gigahertz networks which on a mesh network is tricky i tested the connection of three different devices um one bridge and two cameras that are all 2.4 gigahertz only all three of them connected without a hitch i didn't have to do anything funky try and manipulate the mesh to be 5g off or anything like that. It just worked. So like, again, for 60 bucks for a three pack or 20 bucks each, if you don't need three or you want more than three and you're getting your first mesh networking network, I I couldn't recommend it higher.
0: There you go. 60 bucks. Do it. If that's your Do jam. It. Okay. Um, in the, I don't know, networking security space, we also have the Firewalla Purple is launching. We're going to tell you a little bit about this here, and then actually we've got a, an IoT podcast hotline question about it too. So, Kevin, I know you've been talking <laughs> up a storm, but you're <laughs> our okay. Firewalla dude, so you i uh, wanna-
1: Yes, I've, I've tried all the colors of the rainbow. I've had the red, the blue, and the gold. Uh, this is the purple, and... Last year, I reviewed the Firewalla Gold, and I think it was like over $500 at the time. Now it's down to $438. It was a high-powered Firewalla device. And if you're not familiar with Firewalla, basically the company creates little boxes that have smarts to measure everything on your network Privately, it doesn't go out to the cloud to do this. You don't lose your data. But it can track every single packet, where you're sending data, what servers, what country. So there's device protection built in along with that monitoring. The blue and red devices sat in between your ISP router and maybe your uh, home router The Gold was super powered. It actually ran on a small Intel processor instead of an ARM-based chip. And that could actually be your single-only router and then have all the protections that Firewall offers. The Purple seems to be a scaled-down version of Gold at a much more reasonable price. It's on Indiegogo right now for $299. The MSRP will be $369. It still handles one gigabit per second connections, whereas the gold did up to three gigabits. It has built-in Wi-Fi, which none of the firewalls had before. It gives you your open VPN, so you can literally set up a free VPN at home, access and surf from anywhere in the world through your home firewall device VPN. It's got geo IP filtering, just like the other devices, although it limits you to 10 countries, whereas the gold, you could have more than countries if you want to filter out things. There's a virtual LAN setup that you could do. It works as a bridge mode, works as a router. A- again, it's scaled down. It's an ARM processor now. And we're going to talk about this in our question. But it also, just like the firewall of gold, supports Docker containers on the device, meaning you can run your own apps on your firewall.
0: Yes. So speaking of that, let us go to the Internet of Things podcast hotline, which is where we answer your questions on the show. This week's hotline is brought to you by Silicon Labs Works With event. This is a virtual IoT conference that is going to take place September 14th through 15th. And it is the only event in existence that brings the entirety of the IoT together. Works With will be your gateway into the latest trends training, market discussions, and workshops from the biggest names and ecosystems in the industry. Plus, I will be there. I know, what a selling point. You can register for free at workswith.scilabs.com. Okay, so if you would like to ask us a question, you should give us a call at 512-623-7424 and you will be entered to win for the next two days, a IoT Box O Fun that will include random devices that I have either tried or not tried that are laying around the house, including an Arlo doorbell, a wise smart plug, and I think a smart dry dryer thing. So fun. Okay. So if you would like to win that, again, call us at 512-623-7424. This week's question is actually sent via email from Brian. So I'm going to read his email. Hi there. I'm very curious to get Kevin's take on the new Firewalla Purple, which is currently on Indiegogo, and especially want to hear about the potential to run Home Assistant through the Firewalla Purple's Docker support.
1: I should have a review unit coming to give you a full hands-on experience very in the very near future. Um, but overall, you know, as I said just a few minutes ago, this is definitely a still powerful but less expensive version of the gold. And as far as the Docker. The Gold device does support Docker containers, as does the Purple, and I can tell you, not from experience, but from Firewalla's own site, that they already have several uh, Linux apps and containers that you could install, such as PyHole. So it's an open source ad blocker, although... Firewalla has its own ad blocker, but if you wanted Hole on there, you could do it. They also have instructions on how to set up a home bridge Docker container on a Firewalla. I do not yet see a, a home assistant Docker container with the setup, but it should be doable, first of all, Brian. Second of all, I would assume that they will have some type of support for other Docker containers or steps to get you through the install process. You may be able to figure out, although I think if you look at the home bridge Docker setup steps, they'll explain the configuration for that, that you need, like such as your password and setup, you need to put a config file on there. You'll have to do the same thing for Home Assistant, obviously, but they don't have step-by-step instructions for Home Assistant yet. So to answer your question, it's doable. It's just, they don't tell you how to do it specifically.
0: But since you won't get it until December, there's time to figure it out. So,
1: <laughs> yes, or maybe I can figure it out with uh, a review unit.
0: Yes. So, stay tuned on that, Brian, but we're we're confident. So, that concludes our IoT podcast hotline. Remember, if you would like to be entered to win, give us a call at 512-623-7424 and you could win that smart device grab bag. Okay. That concludes this portion of the show, but please stay tuned for our guest, Jason Shepherd of Zedita, who is going to be talking about machine learning at the edge, is going to be talking about IT and OT convergence and where we are now with that, and a lot of other fun things. So all of this and more in wait to you after a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Very. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Vary, a leading IoT engineering firm. And fans of this podcast might be interested to know that Vary has launched a podcast of its own about the IoT space called The Over the Air Podcast. And I have Ryan Prosser, the CEO of Very. Ryan, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the podcast
2: with our listeners today. Thanks, Stacey. Yeah, sure thing. The podcast is called Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices in the Journey. And so far, we've had a lot of big guests on, including the former CEO of Boeing, who's gone on to raise a bunch of money for IoT initiatives in space. I also recently interviewed the CEO of Monarch Motors, who've developed essentially Tesla for tractors. All right. So tell us, why did you start this podcast? Rather than outcomes, we really wanted to dive into the journey and share those experiences with the audience, aka what went right, what went wrong, and how our listeners can bake those lessons into their own IoT initiatives. You're going to hear business leaders sharing you know, kind of warts and all lessons they've learned, and that hopefully gets them thinking, oh my God, I would have made that mistake.
0: I love it. I love that kind of show. So what can you tell us about the types of things you'll be focused on?
2: One thing that I personally am really passionate about is unpacking and exploring the missteps and some of the scar tissue related to those lessons learned, especially mistakes that didn't appear to be mistakes at the outset. Why was that not the correct path? What would you have done differently? Things like that. What we see a lot at Vary, and we see hundreds of these major engagements a year, is that there aren't nearly as many unique problems as you'd expect. There are a lot of common mistakes that are avoidable. They're incredibly difficult, but rarely unique. And if you see enough repetitions, patterns start to emerge. And our goal for the audience is for them to get those repetitions or some of those repetitions vicariously through these interviews. We really love it when clients ask us, you know, I wonder how company X solved this problem because it looks and feels a lot like what we're dealing with. Since we have those repetitions, we often know the answer.
0: So if anyone listening to this has their own amazing story to tell or knows someone who does, or they wish that you would cover a certain topic, what is the best way for them to reach out to your team to suggest guests or topics for the show in the future?
2: Definitely email us, podcast at verypossible.com. You can also DM me on LinkedIn. My handle is rprosser26. And where can listeners go to find the podcast? So like you said, the podcast is called Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. And you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Jason Shepard, who is the VP of Ecosystems at Zadida. Hello, Jason, how are you today?
3: I'm good, how are you doing?
0: I am excellent, and I'm just going to let you know, it's been like 200-something episodes since you've been on the IoT podcast, so oh, right. welcome back.
3: I yeah. know, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a, been a while.
0: Yeah, yeah, last time you were at Dell still, so that's how long it's been. Yes. Yeah. So I figured you have always been really attuned to a lot of problems in the IT and OT space, namely the unsexy problem of, I'm just going to call it middleware which is, you know, how do you build this stuff to talk to each other so you're not rebuilding the same thing every time? You did that at Dell. Uh, Zadita's been working on that sort of thing with container orchestration effort. So I thought it'd be great to touch base with you and kind of see some of the trends happening as the IT and the OT sides are actually coming closer and closer together. So why don't you give us your perspective on where the market is today with regards to the OT side and the IT side?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. So I guess when we first chatted, I think it was I don't know, two thousand sixteen timeframe. You know, yeah. We yeah, we were working on you know, this was pre EdgeX launch, and obviously there's a lot of different stuff we've been working on in the industry, but around interoperability. But back then, it was a we were like hundreds of IoT platforms it was kind of like the running tally, and everyone's coming out swinging, trying to own everything, and it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna make all this money, and. And then you know it just started to uh, become really challenging for folks to to grow and, and scale any kind of meaningful business. And I think people have definitely realized over the, the years that it actually does make sense to collaborate more on the the core infrastructure. And you make you make your money around the wheel. You differentiate around the wheel. And We've definitely seen that kind of in the OT IT realm, you know, 2014-15, you know, we saw uh, GE Digital come out with Predix and kind of building out the entire spectrum, including IT data centers and, and um, you know, Predix, uh, they kind of rolled back on um, a number of years ago. Siemens with MindSphere came out at least building on cloud infrastructure, you know, from Azure and AWS, but still building applications on top and, and uh, you know, from MindSphere. And, you know, you've seen this progression from let me build it all to at least let me use the cloud infrastructure to more and more OT players are starting to leverage just the IT paths, you know, platforms themselves and realizing that the value is placed around the wheel, necessarily unique hardware and software, but most importantly, their domain knowledge. And so there's, there's been this transition over the past five years. I think people are kind of waking up to even some of the open source efforts that that you mentioned that I've been involved in with a lot of folks is, you know, let's start reinventing the middle and, and focus on the value, but it just takes time for people to realize the pain before they're open to it.
0: Man, I know this is like the story of IT. But let me ask you, when you say finding value around the wheel, let's give people some examples because this is not a phrase I'm familiar with.
3: You know, I I say for starters, you make your money on the iddies. So security, manageability, usability, scalability, you don't make your money on the plumbing. So selling you know, security add-ons versus the underlying infrastructure that helps bolt it together. Uh, Certainly selling analytics, domain-specific, you know, AI or machine learning uh, models. The orchestration tools, even if it's open source-based, there's no one, anyone that values their time doesn't go to GitHub. You know, they want commercial support. So all of these types of, you know, and then new types of services around uh, that foundation. So there's just this common misconception there has been at least, and and I think it's changing and we're not out of the woods yet, that you have to own the middle to make money. But that's like saying you had to own the internet to make money off of it. And there's a couple of people have made some money on it over the years. So it just it's just the case of any new market where people start to realize what their go-to dance move should be around that common foundation. Got it.
0: And I will say in the years that I've been looking at this space, I I see the IT folks going deeper and deeper in. Like at first they were like, yeah, we've got an industrial IoT strategy, but basically it was all in the cloud. You know, sometimes they had like a link to an edge being a gateway device. And now I feel like they're doing these, these partnership deals or even going truly deep with some of the like, direct tie-ups with like the Rockwell Automations or uh, Johnson Controls or even some of the smaller startups like Foghorn, who are trying to kind of really touch the OT side. And meanwhile, the OT people are becoming much less reluctant to adopt useful things like virtualization or containers. So they're looking for solutions there. So I, I do think we're seeing maturing on both sides. What do you think the ideal framework looks like going forward? Is it these partnerships?
3: yeah I think it's these partnerships. I think it's clearly the more the more that we can see the principles that we've been using in the cloud for scale out and just delivering all kinds of new services extend out to the edge. It's closer to the physical world you the ot processes you would run. you recognize the trade-offs between things that are running in real time and need to be you know isolated from broader networks. but you know having having those principles converge, you've know, standardizing on more common infrastructure as, as mentioned. This is where it it needs to get to over the long run because it's just none of this will scale if you've got so many different bases. The last thing we need is another IoT platform. Four years ago it was like a bad episode of three's company where there's always this huge misunderstanding between OT and IT. And now I think that we see a lot more collaboration as as you mentioned and you know, kind of IT coming down and OT coming up uh, the stack, but we've got we've to gotta get some more standardization, I think, for it to, to scale. And...
0: Let's see, when we talk about standardizing at the different layers, what do you think should be standardized? Is it like we talk, uh, I know we've talked about like data formats, uh, you know, that sort of thing. We might talk about, uh, I don't know what else should be standardized. You tell me.
3: Yeah, so in terms of things to be, you know, standardized, it's 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 these core frameworks that you then build commercial value uh, around. So you know, things like Edgex Foundry and and Fledge from LF Edge, those are those are around how do I drive interoperability for IoT data. Not necessarily the data models themselves, because the moment you pick a data model, you're wrong to a lot of people because uh, there's just so many different standards, but how do I make different data formats and connectivity protocols interoperate? Because there's just not going to be one. So those are key. Zodita leverages EvoS uh, also from LFE. So EvoS is, think of that as like the Android of the edge. Same thing. The moment you pick one operating system for IoT or edge computing, you're wrong to a bunch of people. So the philosophy with EvoS is highly curated to support many different types of deployment models, whether they're you know, legacy apps and virtual machines or containers or whatnot. So just very, very focused on building out common building blocks that drive open APIs that then you can build a whole bunch of commercial value out around. You, you know, you've written, uh, talked about the, the FIDO standard that is emerging for device onboarding. That's another example where You building trust through a a, a supply chain, you need to have standards around how do you onboard devices that are cloud agnostic. Same thing is you can still build really great solutions around that that you monetize, but that core plumbing is more standard.
0: Got it. Okay. That's a lot about the whole IT, OT, convergence, friendship, that sort of thing. Let's talk about some of the more fun things that we can do As we as we deal with this convergence, I think as we add more sensors to our operations. So here's where we're going to talk about machine learning at the edge, because I'm so excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys are thinking a lot about that, I believe. What are your customers trying to do and why are they trying to do so much at the edge? Actually, tell us why they're keen on the edge, and then we'll talk about what they're trying to do with machine learning there.
3: Yeah, when it comes to edge computing in general, I mean the the, the driving factor that we see the most is bandwidth savings. So a lot of people talk about latency uh, as the reason to do edge computing, you know, reaction time. But the reality is, if you're doing mission critical kind of latency critical workloads latency i mean it's inherent you're going to do it on prem you know you're never going to deploy your airbag from the cloud you know no matter how fast your 5G network is but so we see bandwidth and that's where you know ai at the edge in terms of driving like filtering of data so only meaningful events are are sent back computer vision definitely the killer app for edge and so we're seeing a, a lot of folks coming to us that you know are wanting to deploy you know, AI ML models out for computer vision and you know, certainly there's safety and security like you kind of spin offs from surveillance and object detection and license plate recognition and stuff like that um we're seeing more and more people come to us around like contactless, contactless checkout, and these different computer vision enabled kiosks for uh, you know, point of sale. That's been a, a trend for sure. Things around worker safety, and you know, of course, there was the whole social distancing thing that um, people are using uh, video for. These are the types of reasons we're seeing people come to us f- um, from an edge standpoint, but you know, specific to you know AI and machine learning. But um, we see a whole gamut of other use cases.
0: Okay, and that makes tons of sense. And how many of these use cases do you see? Like, you know, when I think about a video camera, for example, there's lots you can do with it. But you know, if you're going to run something at the edge, so on the video camera itself, you're probably limited to like a smaller model. So maybe you can recognize seven things as opposed to 80 things, right? So how are people thinking about the jobs they want to do and thinking about like how many algorithms and how far out those things can live? Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, it makes sense. But, I mean, so for starters, yeah, some cameras are going to be highly constrained. This is, you know, of course, you know, you've been following TinyML, and there's a, that's a hot topic now. But, I mean, we're also seeing, you know, cameras themselves getting smarter and smarter. I mean, there's cameras now with, you know, 4 gigs of memory and, you know, uh, multiple core processing, and, and you can run fairly capable inferencing models out there. And then you see these tiered architectures where you've got, you know, smart cameras and then some compute uh, immediately upstream. I mean you look at stuff like like you know Amazon Go stores or or you know things like that where you're doing very, very low latency computer vision stuff right there. I mean they basically have got a, a server behind every camera. So we're definitely seeing a broad range of capabilities deploying being deployed out in the field. But the the biggest challenge that we're seeing for folks in general is how do you how do you orchestrate all that? How do you create and that you do it in the lab and you you kind of figure out party of few, but how do you scale that? It's a massive challenge right now in terms of getting models out there versus doing it in a centralized cloud environment.
0: So is it a function of sending them like having the right models at all of the hundreds of thousands of cameras? Is it checking them?
3: Yeah, how do you do version control? Make sure you're, you've are you got the right model out there. We've been talking with folks that do, like, computer vision, as I mentioned, computer vision, um, for kind of meal checkout. And as they change recipes, you've got to constantly update those models and, and to make sure you've done that reliably at scale. You know, there's different tools you need to just understand for drift. You know, lighting changes, camera angles change. It's just not controlled. Because, you know, in this case, you're doing stuff in the physical world where things change versus you're using... AI on structured data in the back the back end you don't have that it's a different kind of drift that you might experience so you've you've got to accommodate for things that change in the physical world and it just it's just different
0: it sounds excruciatingly difficult
3: it's very it's very difficult easier easier said than in practice but I mean there's obviously upside to it but you have to really think about the mechanics of
2: scale
0: okay, we're all probably accustomed to the types of things you need to think about when you're scaling out in the cloud, right? So if I think about building a data center at scale and building apps on that, you know, I kind of know what that architecture looks like. When we talk about doing it in a distributed way and updating it every, I don't know, two weeks or so, and maybe that's too often, maybe that's not often enough. What are the kind of considerations you need to have?
3: Well, I mean, for starters, you got to be able to do everything remotely obviously it's you know if you're doing it in the cloud you've got people nearby that data center and get in there and they can't do it remotely um, from a console they can just you know, physically go there but i mean we're working with people that are doing stuff out on you know wind turbines out in the middle of nowhere and it you know, with cost of a, a helicopter and a truck roll and all that i mean it could be fifty thousand dollars to go touch a box so you know you need really really reliable remote access you need to make sure that it's built on a foundation that you can't brick during an update so you literally make the device you know, a brick you where you have, we have to go physically replace it and that's why you need to be thinking about how do you deploy stuff from a kind of uh, architecture that taps deep into the, the hardware itself not just like grab an OS put it on there and throw some containers on there and you know hope for the best once it's highly distributed you need to architect it to be super super reliable you know and so then I'll just saw the mechanics of you know supporting DevOps in, in a way that's very very remote uh, you've got to be thinking about mixture of skill sets, the types of folks that are in a very distributed, you know, architecture that spans kind of, you know, the OT world to the IT world. You know, they're not all like heavy on IT certifications, so you've got to make things really simple. It's A lot of these different challenges that you just don't see when it's kind of an entirely in a, an IT domain in a data center.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I would, I would add to that, this idea that in a data center, you're dealing with a lot more uni- uniformity, right? Like you've got a chassis. It's, it's got set, set sizes for everything. In the real world, your actual deployments aren't in uniform spaces. Like one wind turbine might look different than another. You might have like right. a retail store that has, you know, one kind of refrigerator case that you're deploying sensors into and then an- another one in a different retail store. I mean, there's, there's a lot. It boggles my mind. It makes me my head hurt.
3: Yeah, it's 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 painful. The closer you get to the physical world, the more complex everything gets, uh, including you know kind of domain expertise and all that. The other big difference is in the data center. You know, not only a, a more homogeneous, but any sort of controller that you, know, you use to control an infrastructure to play applications, whatever, it assumes that you have a constant connection to that device, and it usually the controller calls that server infrastructure. When you're in the field, you have to assume you're going to lose connection. So if there's a problem and you need to update something, you, you might have lost connection. But so that that device needs to be able to live autonomously until it regains connection. And you have to have the box phone home instead of you phoning the box. It has to work through firewalls and things like that. So um, just it's a very it's similar principles to the cloud, but it's just necessarily different tools, you know, for all these types of reasons there's a lot of folks that are trying to cram data center solutions out into devices in the field and it just sort of breaks down. But the more that we can leverage those principles, the better, just necessarily different tools.
0: Got it. Okay. And then anything else you want to tell us about this? Well, about what you're seeing in the market nowadays?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, well, I mean, obviously we've talked a little bit about it, but um, the next big thing is is just around data trust. It's scary town what's coming with, with AI in terms of the, uh, the dark side of AI and you know, it's another reason why the more that we can get behind some of the basic plumbing that's common, the more the better equipped we are for some of the the things that are coming. But then there's also this notion of if you can build more trust into data and you know working on some efforts like Alvarium and whatnot for that. But like if you can build more trust into data. You can also turn you know, develop new business models, but also help turn security into a profit center. That's one of the challenges with all of this stuff that we're talking about: is how do you secure these solutions? And security is a cost center today, and so no one wants to talk about it or pay for it until something bad happens. And but if we can flip it on its ear uh, over time and and make it more about security enabling not only compliance and in combating. You know, fake data generated by AI, but also developing new business models um, through that kind of confidence in the data. I think that's going to be a major conversation going forward. And that's like advanced class, but to get to advanced class, we've got to figure out like more of a common infrastructure foundation.
0: I got it. Yeah, and, and I've I've been trying to talk to people about data security attestation, figuring out the provenance of data, that sort of thing. And really, most people are like, "Stop! Just stop!" We're still trying to connect everything and build that infrastructure. Yeah. So I I get it.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's advanced class.
0: Next year, we'll talk about the blockchain and how to how to make all this happen. How's that? Yes. All right, Jason. Thanks so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe.